Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Appreciate it. Grateful for you. Uh, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you are joining us for the first time or if it's been a while and you've been out, we are in a long study in Romans. And we are in Romans 8 this fall. We've been in Romans for the last couple of years exploring what Paul's letter to the church in Rome has to say, both to the church that he addressed it to then and to the church of today. And so today we're going to be looking at Romans 8, 2 through 4. But before we jump into the text here, I want to try something with you. Okay, so I'm going to give you the first half of a sentence, and I want you to respond with the second half of it, okay? Finish this sentence for me. You can take our lives, but... Wow, I'm so proud of you guys. I want it to be known that it took four years for me to get Braveheart quote into a sermon, and that, that required a, a tremendous amount of restraint from me. Uh, so I just want you to be proud of me that it hasn't been in every sermon, uh, and it took four years to get us here. These words, which are definitely the most famous words from the movie Braveheart, they resonated deeply with its audience, particularly its American audience, and I think that's for obvious reasons. We were all raised up believing that freedom is one of the defining values of any place you'd want to live. It's certainly one of the defining American values. And as Texans, we are kind of like doubly proud of the value of freedom. And so certainly Braveheart's quote resonated with the audience in the global West. It, it definitely resonated with the audience in Texas. But let me just ask you this question. What is freedom? What is Freedom. What does it mean to be free? What is true freedom? Now, there's a lot of competing definitions of freedom, right? Some might suggest that freedom is merely the ability to act in accordance with one's desires or will without any external compulsion. Basically, being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it. That is a definition of freedom that's on offer. There are other definitions of freedom. Freedom is the ability to act in accordance with what the standards of a civilization are. Some might suggest that freedom is just completely unrestricted. Some may say that character is the restriction for freedom. Some might, uh, some might say that freedom is something to be sacrificed so that others can enjoy the good of society or civilization or community. There are many competing definitions of freedom, but I would suggest to you that for the Christian, the central definition of freedom must be what the Bible says about what it means to be free. And Romans 8, 2 through 4 has something to say about what it means to be free. And I want us to look at that this morning, okay? I want us to kind of explore the question, what is true freedom? How do we get it? And what do we do with it? What is true freedom? How do we get it? What do we do with it? So I'm going to read Romans 8, and I'll actually go up to verse 1, just to kind of catch us up from last week. I'll read Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Now, the reason we do this isn't cold, dead ritual. We do this because God is kind enough to reveal himself. He hasn't left his people in silence, and so we want to give thanks for that. So that's an invitation, not an obligation. Let me read Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Through verse 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, 
could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, in Romans 5, Paul began to get very explicit about the good news of the gospel. Romans 1 through 3 had been a catalog of brokenness, a description of our depravity. It was an explication of our problem. It was detailing to us what the bad news of the good news of the gospel is. But in Romans 4, Paul begins to signal to us that even though the bad news is very bad, the good news is even better. He invokes the covenant father Abraham, he invokes the precious king David, and he might drops both of these names because his audience, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, needs to understand that the gospel message is not new. It has always been the story of redemption, even among the heroes of Israel, like Abraham and David. But in chapter 5, Paul gets explicit with it. He says we can be justified by faith alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He begins to paint for us a picture that even though we have been born unrighteous, we can be made righteous by the declaration of God in Jesus Christ. And in Romans 6 and 7, he begins to kind of talk through the law. Now, Paul plays with the word law throughout all of his letters, but specifically in Romans, Romans 7 and 8, Paul is playing off of the concept of the law, the law. Now, for an audience in this time to hear the law would have been to think of one thing centrally for the Jewish mind, and that was the Torah, the Torah. The Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament with a focus on the law that was revealed at Mount Sinai. This is how the Israelites understood their worship and their allegiance to Yahweh to be regulated. All throughout the course of the Old Testament, you can kind of track the rise and fall of Israel with their faithfulness to Yahweh through the law. Through the law. So when Paul is using law language, he's not thinking of how we think of law primarily as civil law, legal and illegal. He's primarily using law language in terms of faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. And if we don't understand that distinction, we're going to miss what Paul has to say about true freedom. Because here's why. Before you are to be submissive to any law of the land, we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, submissive to the law of God. The law of God. That's the principal law with which the Christian is concerned, is what has God said? What has God said? So I want us to look at freedom here. Look in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus... From the law of sin and death. Now Paul's doing some wordplay with law. Okay? The law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life are not two different laws. It's two different approaches to living with God. Now let me, let me show you this here. When you first read the verse, you might ask yourself, well, is the law setting me free or is the law killing me? Okay, what is the difference between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death? Does God have two laws for us? 
Has God changed his mind? Do the rule, are the rules different after we come to trust in God than they were before? Are there two different laws that two different groups are held accountable to? No, no, no. Paul is talking about one law. He's just asking the question, how do you relate to this one law? Where do you find yourself in relationship to the law of God? He's contrasting two approaches to the law. Two approaches to the law. The first approach to the law is a spirit-empowered approach to the law. It's a spirit-liberated approach to the law. The first approach to the law is the spirit of life. That we have been made alive by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the law viewed as a tutor, as a roadmap, as signals on the road to faithfulness with God. You see, when the law was introduced... The Israelites knew almost immediately, while the law was being introduced immediately, Israel was in the process of breaking that law. And they went on to have highs and lows with their faithfulness to the law, their judgments and their benefits congruent with whether they were faithful to the law or not. But the principal thing that Paul wants us to see here is that the law of God was introduced for two explicit purposes. One to show us that we stood in great need of grace. We stood in need, great need of God's mercy and love. And two, having experienced the grace and mercy of God, that the law now served as a tutor, as a roadmap to what it looked like to live faithful to God in the midst of a broken world. The law was intended to be something sweet, to be something that produces life. Have you ever been journeying through the Psalms and heard how the psalmist talks about the law? It's like delight. I want to meditate on a day and night. It's honey on my lips. It can feel a little funny when you read that if your thought to the law is the law is only condemnation. If you can only view the law as chains, then what David says is incredibly confusing. But you see, David's approach to the law is different It's changed. David has experienced the grace of Yahweh. He's been rescued from the fires of condemnation. And now he can view the law for what it was intended to be. A picture of God's character. And as a road map to a wise and faithful life to God. In the midst of a confusing, broken, and disorienting world. There are two approaches to the law. There is a spirit-empowering approach to the law where the spirit of life kindles within us both the mercy and grace of God and salvation and the satisfaction that comes with saying, I want to follow God. You see, when the spirit of life frees us from condemnation, because when we're born into this world, as Paul has already said over and over and over again in Romans, when we're born into this world, we are born condemned. And we are condemned by what? By God's law. We have failed it. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are born into this world having failed. But when the Spirit of God saves his people, he releases us from the condemnation of that failure. And when he releases us from the condemnation of that failure, the law is no longer a symbol that we cannot measure up. It is now a collection of signposts on the faithful way to following God. Okay, so there's another approach to the law. And it's the approach that we're born into this world taking, which is a death-producing law. 
a death-producing law. It is what Paul calls here the law of sin and death. And if a spirit-empowering law is the law viewed as a tutor, a death-producing law is the law viewed as a tyrant. It is the law condemning us. It is the law shouting out over our lives. You'll never measure up. You're never going to do it. You're broken from the start. You can never follow God. You are unrighteous. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. You're never going to be good enough for God. That's a death-producing law. And we're born into this world already on that path. We're born into this world condemned by the law, but also viewing the law as something that can only produce death that it's a dead end in our pursuit of God and of the abundant life. Paul contrasts the spirit-empowered law with the death-producing law, and basically he's trying to tell you this. If you try to free yourself from condemnation through obedience to the law, do you know what it produces? More condemnation. If you try to free yourself from obedience to the law through obedience to the law, all it's going to produce is sin and death. If you try to outwork the condemnation of the law of God, you're never going to outflank it. You're never going to outsmart it. You're never going to work hard enough to scale the mountain of God's law. If you try to evade condemnation through obedience, all you're going to end up is as exhausted and condemned. You cannot save yourself when you measure yourself against the law. But, but if you trust in God, if you come to God and you say, I know that I'm condemned, but I desperately need salvation, then God saves you and the spirit of God takes up residence within you and now what had been a mark of your failure is now markers on the road to faithfulness. The faithfulness. God, when he saves his people, he changes our relationship to the law. He changes our relationship to the law. This freedom that God grants, the freedom that God grants through the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life, it isn't just a change of legal status. It is that. It is a change in our designation, but it's not merely that. It's not only a change in our identity. When God frees us from the spirit of the law of sin and death through the spirit of the law of the Holy Spirit in Christ, there is a work of transformation that begins. There is a work of transformation that begins. Being freed from the law is not just the pronouncement, you are forgiven. Being free from the law is not just the pronouncement, you are forgiven. Being free from the law is the pronouncement, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. It's a change in designation. It's a change in status. You were unforgiven, now you're forgiven. But this forgiveness is not the foundation for us to say, thank you God, now I'll do whatever I want. This forgiveness begins a new foundation in your life. One you do not possess by nature, but can receive by grace. And once you have received this new foundation by grace, the Spirit is empowering you to faithfulness. To faithfulness. To obedience to God. As we've said before, the law is like an anchor. It's all about where you put it. 
The law is like an anchor. It's all about where it's placed. If you try to embrace or give the law to someone who hasn't been freed from condemnation, do you know what it does? It drags them down into the depths of shame. It drags them down into the deepest wells of sorrow. If you try to foist upon someone who has not experienced the grace of God and salvation, the dictates of the law, do you know how they experience it? They do not experience it as freedom. They experience it as forsakenness. But once you have experienced freedom, once God has invited you into the voyage on the open seas of following Jesus with all of the freedom, now this anchor that would have been your condemnation, it is your sure and steady security when the winds blow and the waves seem to overtake the ship. The law is all about where you place it. If you try to give it to someone who's condemned already, it just sounds bitter. It feels and tastes wrong. But when you give it to someone who has known the saving grace of God, it's sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than honey. Christian freedom is what God has for us as his people This is the freedom that God grants for those in Christ Jesus. Christian freedom is what it means to be free in Christ Jesus. And I want to caution us here. I want to put a little asterisk next to this. Because I think that for some of us, if you've been around church world for a little while, Christian freedom can kind of become your like, I don't really have to worry about that card. I can kind of do that without consequence. So maybe I drink a little too much. Well, you know, I'm free in Christ. So maybe I kind of indulge foolishness a little too much. Well, you know, I'm free in Christ. Well, no, you know, maybe I'm just kind of apathetic towards God's word, but you know, I'm free in Christ. Freedom in Christ isn't a license for us to live with no consequences. Freedom in Christ is knowing that when we seek to follow after Jesus radically and we fail, we fail into forgiveness. We fail into forgiveness. That when we pursue Jesus with our whole life, Christian freedom is knowing that when we fail in that endeavor, we fail, we fall onto streets of grace. Christian freedom isn't our get-out-of-jail-free card for living however we want. Christian freedom is God's invitation towards us in Jesus to really be transformed to look like Jesus. That's what God wants. God wants us to look like Jesus, to be conformed into the image of his son, and yet he knows that because of our broken nature, we will hear that call as one of condemnation. So by grace through faith, he pulls us into Christ Jesus, and he sets us on a new foundation of righteousness so that when we chase after Jesus and we fail, that we can know that we fail into forgiveness. I love how John writes this in 1 John. John writes it like this. He says to the church, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm trying to tell you here today. I'm preaching this to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, 
you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is inviting us into faithfulness, knowing we need a strong and steady and enduring and inexhaustible foundation of grace, and he has granted that in Jesus. Praise God for that. We are not just free from the law of sin and death, but we are free because of God's work. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. See, this freedom that God has for us by the Spirit in Jesus Christ is a freedom that we can receive because of God's work. Look at what it says in verse 3. For who has done? What's it say right there? For who has done? What? What's the word there? Whose name is there? God. Say it loud. Is it Kyle's name? Is it Joe's name? Is it Sean's name? Is it Michael? Is it Andrew? Is it Chris? Is it Haley? Is it Jeff? Is it Katie? Is it Wade? Is it Meredith? Is it Jordan? Is it Lindsay? God. God. I'd be real clear about whose name is there. Because a lot of us live as if that's our name right there. For what Kyle has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For Amy is supposed to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For Adrian is supposed to do what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That's not what it says. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The only one who can rescue us from the law of sin and death is God. He's the only one. There is no rescue. There is no salvation apart from what God has done in Jesus. He must do the great work. He must do the great work that we cannot do, and he has, and he has, and he will. He will be faithful to bring it to completion. God has done what the law could never have produced on its own. The law could never produce in Israel or in us the kind of empowering obedience that God was calling us to because the law was always going to be an anchor in the wrong place. There needed to be rescue. There needed to be freedom. There needed to be salvation. And it's not because the law was not righteous. It's not because the law wasn't a perfect revelation of God and his character. But because its understanding and its practice was weakened by the flesh. Look at that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. The problem isn't with God's revelation of the law. When David is singing the praises of the law in the Psalms, he's not, he, he's not, he doesn't have a footnote next to it that's like, yeah, kind of, it was, it was okay, it was just all right, I'm just being hyperbolic. No, he is celebrating how good the law is. The problem isn't with God's law. The problem is that our understanding of God's law, our practice of God's law was weakened and is weakened by the flesh. That's the problem. When we read the first five books of the Old Testament, and we read it and we go, wow, it just doesn't really feel like, doesn't really feel like this makes sense to me. You know what? It doesn't. The problem isn't with it. The problem is with you. The problem is with us. The problem is with me. Our misunderstanding and misapplication of the law is a result of our fleshly weakness. We've never been able to keep the law perfectly because we are weak. But God in Christ Jesus, he keeps the law perfectly. He keeps the law perfectly. How has God done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do? Look, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin 
in the flesh. How has God done this work? By coming into this world. God the Father sends God the Son and he assumes a human nature. He takes upon himself in the incarnation human flesh. One person, two natures, fully God and fully man. And it is pivotal. All of the gospel ministries are pivotal. And do you know why? Because we needed a sacrifice, a substitute, a representative who could perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf. And this is exactly what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has done. When, when Jesus was 26 years old and nobody was recording what he was saying, and he was in there working with Joseph doing carpentry work, do you know what he was doing? He was perfectly fulfilling the law. Do you know what Jesus was doing as a 13-year-old when no one was watching and no one cared and he wasn't healing anybody? Do you know what he was doing? He was perfectly fulfilling the law. If you don't have every micro-movement, every nanosecond of Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law before his public ministry begins, you do not have the Savior you need. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to perfectly fulfill the law. God doesn't shout down at the world, hey, figure it out. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He's not a Thomas the Tank Engine, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's not Thomas the Tank, is it? Who is that? It's another train. I'm, 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 I'm getting my trains confused here. You know, I'm not a conductor, okay? I'm a pastor. But he doesn't say that, nonetheless. Neither does Thomas. I don't want to get him misquoted here, but... God doesn't shout down at us and say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He doesn't shout down and say, I think you can, I think you can, I think you can. God comes to us to rescue us. In the sending of the Son of God, God sends his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He enters in among us. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us on our weakness, but listen to this, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but his flesh was not sinful. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he was tempted, but he did not sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet he was righteous all the way to the end. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet he was a substitute for sinners. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he was the high priest over the house of God. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for what purpose? So that sin could be condemned in the flesh. For sin. Paul says this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake God made him who knew no sin to become sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How are we released from the law? Because God who has condemned us by the law releases us from that condemnation. Somebody had to be perfectly obedient to the law on your behalf. And if you try to live like it's got to be you, you're never going to fulfill what God requires. But God has sent his own son to perfectly fulfill the law so that he could free you from the condemnation of the law so that once again the law could be a roadmap to faithfulness to God and no longer a tyrant that shouts out your damnation from the heavens. The Son of God stands in the place that we deserve to be. And because of this, we're free to walk in the Spirit. Look at it in verse 4. Verse sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Christ Jesus has freed us from two things. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down because I think so much of the misunderstanding, both of the boredom and the despair of the Christian life, comes as a misunderstanding that both of these realities are true in Jesus. The first, in Christ, we have been granted freedom from the penalty of sin. In Christ, we have been granted freedom from the penalty of sin. We are no longer subject to the wrath of God against sin. In Christ Jesus, you are no longer subject to the wrath of God against sin. Do you know what the antithesis means? Outside of Christ Jesus, you are subject to the wrath of God against sin. That's how we're born into this world by nature. That's what we looked at last week. That when we're born into this world, we're born, as Ephesians says, as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. We're born into this world under condemnation as a result of sin. But in Christ Jesus, we are free from the penalty of sin and death. But it's not the only thing we're free from. We're not just free from the penalty of sin and death. In Christ Jesus, we are free from the power of sin and death. And people miss this. Free from the power of sin and death. We're no longer subject to God's wrath, but we are also no longer chained to the emaciating power of sin. Sin strip mines your soul. Sin emaciates your loves. Sin is a corruption. It is a rust on your person. And freedom in Christ doesn't just mean you're free from the penalty of sin and death. It means you're free from the power of sin and death. And let me tell you something. If sin and death is something that you've, you're engaging in regularly, if you're engaging in habitual sin, you may think, this doesn't really hurt anybody as long as it stays with me. And I'll tell you, what's happening right now is there is a toxic root that is developing in your life and it will bear fruit of bitterness. It will bear fruit of destruction. In many ways, it almost certainly already is and you just remain blind to it. And I've been there. This is not a word of me to you. This is a word for us. I have been there. I have been in a place where I believed that I was freed from the penalty of sin and death, but I was not practicing freedom from the power of sin and death. And what Paul is saying here is you're freed from the penalty and you're freed from the power. And let me just tell you, having been in a place where I felt like I was still under the power of sin and death and now walking in freedom from that, I'll tell you, it's better to walk in the freedom from the power of sin and death. Whatever you think you're gaining living under the power of sin and death, it is lost to you. And whatever you think you will lose walking in freedom in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death, it is all gain. Tenfold. We are free to walk in the spirit, a freedom from the penalty of sin and death, and a freedom from the power of sin and death. Why is Paul telling us this? Three reasons. Three reasons. The first, obedience is a fruit of salvation. Obedience is a fruit of salvation. Obedience is not how you earn salvation, but obedience is the pathway to enjoying all that God has for you in Jesus. I know that it's very fashionable right now for us to kind of think about any obedience language as just kind of, oh, those are constraints. Those are restrictions. And guess what? They are. Because there are things that God has said are bad for you, and he knows better than you. 
You want to use your body however you want to use it? I know that seems right to the world. God has said it's wrong no matter what anyone says, and God's way is better. God's way is better. You want to indulge in the fantasies of the mind in any way you so choose? I know the world says there's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, and God has said my way is better. God does have restrictions for you. But once you have received the mercy of God in salvation, you know those restrictions are guardrails on a path to life. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress with my daughter right now, a children's kind of version of it. It's beautiful. You, you know, you got a five or six-year-old. It's a wonderful story to start reading to them in your home at night. It's great, especially if you've done some storybook Bibles already. Good foundation. Pilgrim's Progress is a good next step, okay? But always through Pilgrim's Progress, do you know what's happening? There's this narrow way. And there are constant, every chapter, another opportunity to leave the narrow way. Do you know what happens when the true pilgrims leave the narrow way? God sends help. God sends rescue. But there are consequences. It hurts them. It slows them down. It hurts others that they love. You see, when God invites us in Jesus to begin to live in his world, he does call us to walk in a narrow way. And here's what happens. God begins to send help when we walk off that path, calling us back to the narrow way, never losing our status as pilgrims, but sometimes bearing the consequences of what it looks like to stray from obedience to God. Paul is telling us this because he wants us to know obedience is a fruit of salvation. Obedience is a fruit of salvation. Obedience is the expected result of the transforming power of grace. The grace of God and salvation, it's like a head-on collision with our hearts. And just like any other head-on collision, you do not walk away unchanged. Grace is incongruous. It's not what we deserve. We don't merit grace. But grace does come with the expectation of transformation. How, having beheld the glory and the grace of God, could we walk away and settle for lesser things? But we do. We do, and God calls us back to the glorious picture of grace, the glorious reality of grace. Obedience is a fruit of salvation. It's the expected result of transformation. And guess what? Obedience is a better way. There are worse ways to live in this world. I was reading uh, another little kid's book with my daughter, Chameleon and His Can of Worms. And it's talking about, through this story of some kids fishing, the chameleon comes up and he steals the kid's worms. And the kids start to say, well, it's wrong that you stole my worms. And the kids say, well, uh, and the chameleon says, no, it's not wrong. What's wrong for you may be right for me. What's right for you may be wrong for me. There's really no nothing that's better or worse. Let me tell you something. That's false. That's false. There are better ways. There are better ways. The story ends with that point. I didn't just leave my daughter hanging with that cliffhanger there. <laughs> I don't know, sweetheart. There may not be objective good and bad in this world. Go figure it out. Enjoy Paw Patrol, you know. The book takes you to the conclusion. But I gotta tell you, I know we're in a world where it's, it's hard for us to reckon with the fact that we are a people who believe there are rights and wrongs, there are goods and bads, there are better and worse. There are. Obedience to God is a better way to live. And you don't measure that in cultural moments, you measure that in millennia. And you measure it in accordance with the hope of heaven. And I think over the course of human history, and I think when we look at the future hope of heaven, we see that obedience to God is a better way. There are two temptations for us to avoid in light of this. Let me give this to you, and then we'll, we'll land it. Two temptations when we think of obedience. 
The first, I must obey to be rescued. I must obey to be rescued. This temptation emerges when we don't believe we've been freed from the penalty of sin. Those who believe they must obey to be rescued, they still view God as looking at us with holy anger and disappointment. But when we take up residence in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only thing the Father has for us now is a delighting love. One temptation is for us to think that we must obey to be rescued. The second temptation is having been rescued for us to believe, I don't really have to worry about obeying God anymore. I don't have to really worry about obeying God anymore. This is when we don't believe we've been freed from the power of sin. If the first temptation emerges because we don't believe we've been freed from the penalty of sin, this temptation emerges because we don't believe we've been freed from the power of sin. We still view ourselves as resigned to the inevitability of sin and wrongdoing. Well, I just must sin. I'm just a no good, dirty, rotten sinner. This is the best I have to offer. That is not how the scripture talks about the Christian. All of your righteous deeds as a a Christian are not as filthy rags. Your heart is not deceitful and wicked above all things. Who could know its ways as a Christian? You have a change of heart, a change of reality, a change of foundation, a change of designation before God. And now God is saying to you, obey, walk in my righteous ways, walk in the counsel of my law and wisdom because it is better. But when you fail, there is grace. And you're never going to exhaust it. You're never going to deplete it. God tells us that the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is true freedom. True freedom is not us getting to do whatever we want, when we want, however we want it, for whatever reason we deem necessary or beneficial. That's not true freedom. True freedom is being liberated from the condemnation of the law so that we can walk in the joy of fellowship with God. That's what true freedom is. And who does God invite in to experience this? He says in Jesus Christ, all who come to me are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, the Father will not turn away. This freedom is not just available to us right here. It's available to everyone everywhere. And when we taste it, God pronounces over us, you are free. Go and sin no more. You are forgiven Go and sin no more. Some of you in here today, you need to hear the message today that you are freed from the penalty of sin and death. Some of you have never grappled with the truth and the beauty of that reality, that you have been born into this world condemned by the law, under the law of sin and death. And you need to hear me clearly say, and you need to hear the word of the Lord is for you today, there is freedom from the penalty of sin and death. You can experience salvation, not tomorrow, not a year from now. You can know salvation today. Whether you're seven years old or you're 70 years old, you can know the saving power and grace of God today. You can be removed from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That is the gospel message for you. Others of you, you once upon a time received this message. You've believed it. You know you're free from the penalty of sin and death, but you feel constrained to the power of sin and death. You feel resigned to the inevitability of sin and unrighteousness. And what you need to hear is this. The gospel that has saved you is the gospel that secures you. It is the gospel that sanctifies you. It is the gospel not just that has changed your forever home, but it is changing your now, your present. And it is doing it by the power of the spirit of the law of life. 
That's what God is doing here, right now, in this place. Will we receive it when we walk in God's ways? That's the question that God is asking us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless us on the pilgrim way, that we would be reminded that even though the way is narrow, you have invited us into it, that you have released our burdens at the cross, that you have freed us from the penalty of sin and death, and that you have given us the spirit of the law of life, that we might walk in your ways. Help us, Lord. For those who remain blinded and constrained to the law of sin and death, I I pray, God, that you would open up the eyes of their heart, that they would experience all that you have for them in salvation. For those who remain resigned to the power of sin in their life, I pray that today would be a day of great release and restoration. And God, that they may begin to walk in the power of the Spirit of God that indwells them. New hearts, new minds, that we would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Lord, we ask you all of this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.